Well, I want you to know uh, what a difficulty it is each week to try and condense several hours worth of study into a 40-minute sermon. (laughs) As Bob and Kanatani and I were talking about this morning, uh, probably the biggest challenge is deciding what to leave out because there's just no way to cover all the information in the time that we have together. So I'm telling you this because I want you to know that what you hear on Sunday morning is what I feel that God has impressed upon my heart most. But there's something I want you to understand about that. And it's this. Anything you hear from this pulpit is a reflection of what God is doing in my heart as well. I'm trying to grow in faithfulness just like you are. And so when I challenge you to apply certain things into your life, you need to know that I am being challenged in just the same way. Because we're in this thing together. And I want you to understand the the heart behind what's communicated. For example, last week we talked about Esther's defining moment. And, And I really do believe this was a significant turning point in her life. I believe this is where her faith became her own. She stood for what she believed, even at the risk of her own life. And and I ask you to consider what that defining moment might look like in your life. But you need to understand that that wasn't a question for some of you. That was a question for all of us, (laughs) including me. And so my best sermons usually take place about five minutes after I walk out the door. (laughs) And I realize all the things that I wish I would have said and I didn't. What I realized last week is that there very rarely is one defining moment in anyone's life. More often than that, we have multiple defining moments in our life. Multiple moments. When when God calls us to, to deeper levels of faith, and sometimes we have several of those in a single day, right? And so it's important to understand that that we're trying to grow in our faith. As God in His grace gently reveals to us areas of our life that we have yet to surrender. And He invites us to trust Him. We have a choice in those moments. To either put our trust in Him or to go our own way. That's a defining moment. And it happens for every single one of us. Myself included. Sometimes they happen multiple times in a single day. It's the process of what it looks like to to grow in faith, to to put our trust in God. And we're in this thing together. And that's why the scripture calls us not to forsake our gathering together, as is the habit of some, but to encourage each other. Towards what? To, To encourage each other towards deepening our faith and trust in God. If we don't have him, we don't have anything. And so we are here to encourage each other, to trust in God, to grow in our faith, and we're in this thing together. So when we look at God's word, let's look at it from that perspective. And before we do, let me open us up in prayer. Father, I'm grateful for this church family. I'm grateful that we're in this together. I'm grateful for your grace that very gently reveals to us areas in our life that are not surrendered to you and how you very mercifully invite us to trust you. I'm grateful that you don't reveal all those areas that are not surrendered all at once because it would crush us. 
But instead, you know just the right time to say the just the right thing in just the right way. And so help us to hear that this morning, that we listen carefully to what your word has to say in our life, and that we hear the invitation to either trust in you or go our own way. And I pray that we make the decision to trust in you, to take a bold step of faith, just like Esther. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, last week, we kind of left Esther in a little bit of a crisis of belief. If you remember, we were uh, trying to figure out, is she going to stand for what she believes, or is she just going to kind of wait from that prominent position that she's in and see what happens? We learned as we closed out the chapter that she'd consider the cost, and she'd determined to stand up for what she believes, even at the risk of her own life. And after having made that decision, there was something really important that she decided to do that really is necessary for us to understand what she does next. So if you would go back to uh, Esther chapter 4 verse 15. This was her first action after having made the decision to stand for what she believes. It says in verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Assemble all the Jews who were found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She and all the Jews are going to fast for three days. And although it may not be explicit, There are some very important spiritual truths that are implicit in these two verses, and I want us to know what they are. First of all, we need to understand that Esther's making the decision to stand with Israel, to stand with the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. She said, tell Mordecai to assemble all the Jews, and and let's fast for three days, them and me, because I'm a part of those people. Do you remember the crisis, identity crisis that so many of the Jews had during this time? They were exiles in a foreign land. Everything that they'd previously known was taken away. No temple, no sacrifices, no king, no priest. Well, Esther is beginning to answer that question for herself. You see, Haman was right. The Jews did live by a whole different law. It was the law of God. And it was the identity of God's people, how he instructed them to be set apart from the world around them. And Esther has determined to risk her life to live according to that law. Because you see throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament that God consistently calls his people to a place of trust in him, a a place of dependence. And very often that's reflected with prayer and fasting. Let me give you an example. You don't need to turn there. It's in Joel chapter 1 verse 14 and this is just one of many examples that you find in the Old Testament it says this it says consecrate a fast proclaim a solemn assembly gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord that represents what Esther is doing and in calling all the Jews to to do with her cry out to the Lord 
It's the spiritual heritage of the Jewish people. And, and Esther is aligning herself with those people and calling them back to this faith. Kind of like we do on Sunday mornings. <laughs> when, when we come together and we look at God's word and we call ourselves back to aligning our lives with the truth of God's word. You and me both trying to do the same. That's what Esther's doing. See, for both the Jews and for us, prayer is an outward expression of an inward desire to align our lives with the will of God. It's a defining moment because it's a place of surrender. And that's what Esther's doing. She is surrendering her will to the will of God and she's inviting all the people of God to join her in that. So that's the the important introduction to what we're going to then look at next. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened that when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. See, Esther's plan was preceded by prayer. It was humble. It was patient. It was a defining moment. Now, keep in mind the importance of that in light of what just took place. Remember, Queen Vashti lost the crown because she disobeyed the king's law. She didn't do what he asked, and she was immediately eliminated. Well, Esther's about to do the very same thing. The law of the land says very clearly that you do not come into the king's presence unless he invites you. There's only one outcome if you refuse to follow that law, and it's immediate death. And yet, that's what Esther, through prayer, has determined to do. Walk into the king's presence uninvited. Now, when she does, she's smart about how she does this. It says that she puts on her royal robes. It'd be kind of like me showing up on Sunday with the suit and tie. You would know immediately when you saw me, something was up, right? The same was true for Xerxes. As soon as he saw his queen in her royal robes, it caught his attention. But he also, she also did it because it was a sign of showing respect and honor. Much like when you go to a wedding or a funeral, you don't show up in your gym clothes. You dress up. Why? Because you're showing respect and honor, and that's what Esther is doing. Her outward appearance is respectfully requesting the king's invitation. And in response, we see that he extends his golden scepter, which is a way of allowing her to enter into his presence protected. He's inviting her. Now, this was easily the biggest obstacle she had to overcome, right? Because there was a a death sentence attached to this one. But she's not anywhere near out of the woods yet. How is she going to question the decree that the king just made to annihilate all the Jews? I mean, isn't she going to question his judgment in that? And, And what about the fact that she hasn't even told him that she's a Jew? How's he going to respond to her deception? See, she's still on shaky ground. This is far from over. 
Let's look at verse 3. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it will be given to you. And Esther said, If it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I prepared for you. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. I want you to first notice that Esther's not in a hurry. Okay, She's very patient about making her request as she approaches the king. See, the king assumes that she's there because she wants something from him. It's an obvious assumption that one might wake, but, but what she does is she says that she's there to do something for him. She says, would it be okay if I served you and Haman a home-cooked meal? In fact, I know your favorites and I've prepared them before you. Do I have your permission to serve them to you now? That's what she does. Esther is patient in her timing and very wise in her approach. See, uh, Esther, like a lot of women throughout the ages, understand that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And she's smart, so she is very, uh, very particular in how she's going to approach the king. And it works, because the king essentially responds and says, Esther, you can have whatever you want. When he makes that statement, he does it twice, in verse 3 and again in verse 6. Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done to you. Essentially what he's saying is, you tell me whatever you want, and it's going to happen. It's a blank check. Now, you may remember in the New Testament, when the daughter of Herodias danced before Herod. Remember this scene? He tells her the very same thing. Make whatever your request you want up to half of the kingdom. It's the way of royalty saying, you can have whatever you want. Now, you remember what she asked for, the head of John the Baptist. And she got it. Because that was the intent of the promise being made by both Herod and, in our story, King Xerxes. So you and I are looking at this and saying, this is working out perfectly. She just gave him permission to ask whatever she wants. Now's the time, right? Apparently not. (laughs) Esther, hold back. She's patient about making her request. Look at what she does in verse 7. So Esther answered and said, my petition and my request is this. If I've found favor in the sight of the king, And if it please the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Isn't this interesting? She's just served them an incredible meal, and he says, you can have whatever you ask, what would you like? And she says, well, what I would like is for you to come back tomorrow where I can prepare a banquet even greater than the feast I've just given you, and I want to do it to honor you, both you and Haman. Do you see what she's doing here? She's very very prayerful, very humble, very purposeful about her request. She's not forcing herself on the king. She's not manipulating him and trying to get one over on him. 
In fact, she takes the way of humility to gain influence by saying essentially, tomorrow this is what I want to do if you'll grant me that request and then I will do whatever you say. She's humble to gain influence. Unlike Haman, who is filled with pride, and Esther is just wetting his appetite for more because he thinks this is all about him. Look at how it continues in verse 9. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. I bet he did. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up and tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow, also I'm invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and his friends said to him, have a gallows 50 cubits high made in the morning. Ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. And so he made the gallows. Haman leaves the meal feeling honored. And the very minute he walks out the door, there's Mordecai. Refusing to bow to him in respect and it infuriates him. See, up to this point, Haman has, uh, has not made that personal vendetta known. When he presented this request to the king to annihilate the Jews, he never once mentioned Mordecai. He never once mentioned the offense because he wanted the king to think this was all about him. But every time he sees the man, he burns with anger. You see why that's the case is because Haman's whole identity is wrapped up in what other people think about him. <laughs> He's validated by praise and recognition. I mean, look at what it says in verse 9. Then Haman went out of this banquet, which he was invited to, feeling special and honored, and it says, that day he was glad and pleased of heart. His greatest pleasure is the praise he receives from other people. And his deepest anger is when that is withheld. Since his personal well-being is based upon the opinion of others, he's a very emotionally unstable man. When he goes home to report all this to his friends, notice how Haman describes himself. Look again at verse 11. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, every instance which the king magnified him. And how he'd been promoted above all the princes and, and servants of the king. He talks about his wealth, his position, his power. His whole identity is centered on money and possessions and influence. And, and even though he has more than he'll ever need, it's still not enough. And it never will be. He's 
filthy rich and completely empty. This, this security is so fragile because it's dependent upon the opinion of people. So much so that one negative opinion, one man brings him to his knees and he falls apart. Look at what it says in verse 13. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Why? Because every time I see Mordecai, I burn with anger. What a miserable man. And how miserable it is for us when we do the very same thing. So that who we are and how we live is based on what others think about us. This is Mordecai. Now, you'll remember, the king has already passed a law as if he had to do this, but he, he passed a law for all the people in his kingdom to understand that every man should rule his own household. Remember that back in chapter 1? Well, Haman is so dependent upon the opinion of others, he can't even make a decision for himself. He, he's so out of whack. He goes back to his home, and he has to ask his friends and his family and his wife, what am I supposed to do? And they are very clear. It's unanimous. You need to kill him. Use your power to get rid of this person. Not only that, you need to send a message. Build a gallows, 75 cubits. That's seven stories tall. Okay? Picture that in your mind. Now, the gallows could be a, like a noose to hang, but more common in that, church, in that ancient culture was um, a big wall or a pole that had a stake and you would impale the victim on the stake so that they would just hang there for everybody to see. Very much like the crucifixion during the time of Christ. Both the gallows and the crucifixion were built to send a message. The cross was intended to send the message of the power and control of the Romans. You mess with us, this is what you get. The gallows in our story was intended to promote the power of Haman. You mess with me, this is what you get. But like the cross, this is not going to work out like Haman intended. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles. And they were read before the king, and it was found written about Mordecai that had reported uh, concerning Bethana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, and that they had sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus or King Xerxes. And the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing. Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Well, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court and the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. You know, sometimes things are just too coincidental to be a coincidence. And I think that's exactly what you have going on here. During the same night that Haman is busy building the gallows, King Xerxes can't sleep. And so he decides to get up and read. How many of you, when you can't sleep, get up and try to read something to fall back asleep? A lot of people do. Well, this is what he does. Being a prideful man, 
he chooses to read the Chronicles, which essentially describes all the great things that have happened in his kingdom. Okay? This is what he decides to read. And while he's reading, he runs across this no-name guy named Mordecai, who apparently saved his life, which he could not remember and didn't even know about it, and, and understands through the Chronicles that he was never rewarded for that. Well, just so happens, as he happens to run across that, that he then realizes we need to ask somebody, oh, look, just who showed up? <laughs> it's Haman. So Haman comes in, and he asks him a question. So either this is an unimaginable coincidence or divine intervention. And sometimes things are just too coincidental to be a coincidence, and I believe this points us to God's hand at work in this situation. Now, keep in mind, Haman had probably been up at least most of the night building the gallows in which he intended to hang Mordecai. And he was there to ask the king's permission to carry out that act. But while he's there, the king has a question, and Haman pridefully thinks it's all about him. Look at verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Haman, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and a horse which the king has ridden, and whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one the king's most noble princes and let them array the man with the king's desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. Pride causes you to assume that everything is all about you. That you're the center of the universe and all the people orbit around your wants, needs, and desires. So when the king asked Haman about what he should do to honor a man, Haman assumes he's obviously talking about me. And notice when he does, he goes over the top to describe what should be done. The reason he does that is because he's already second in command. He can't be promoted. He's already filthy rich. He gave millions of dollars into the bank, king's bank account. Remember that? So it's not money. It's not fame. So if he can't be the king, he at least wants to be treated like him. So what he asked for is this. He says, I want to wear the king's robe. Take it out of your closet and give it to the man. He wanted to wear the king's royal crown. He wanted to ride on the king's royal horse. He wanted to have a royal official parade him around and call on the people to honor him. You see, for a man whose identity is built on the approval of others, this is his finest hour. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the city gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to a man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, 
But Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. (laughs) Can you imagine this scene? I mean, this is the epitome of irony. How did Haman hide the shock on his face when the king looked at him and said, Haman, that's a great idea. Go do everything you just said for some guy named Mordecai. Can you imagine what that had been like? And then to parade Mordecai around just as he had described, hoping it would be for himself, knowing that he was calling on the people to honor a man that he intends to murder. This is not working out like he intended. His finest hour is truly turning into a a nightmare. But at least he has his family and friends. Look at verse 13. And Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and to all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him but you will fall before him. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. His family stood beside him when he was successful. They completely abandoned him in his folly. What they essentially tell him is, look, if this is what's going on, then you're on your own. We're out of here. We don't want to be associated with what's about to happen to you. See, Haman is reaping the consequences of his shallow relationships. (laughs) He engaged with people. He had relationships with people based on selfish motives. What was good for him? Now, he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Before he had time to collect his thoughts, there was a knock on the door. The eunuchs arriving hastily saying, Haman, it's time to go. The banquet that Esther has prepared for you and King Xerxes is ready. Come, let's go. I'm going to leave you hanging there in hopes that you come back next week, okay? But before we finish up, I do believe that what we see in our passage this morning has a lot to say about where we find our identity. And I think we see that contrast between Haman and Esther, which gives us a picture of what that might look like. Let's start with Haman. Haman was a man whose identity was found in money, in possessions, and influence. He's validated by what he does, what he has, and who he knows. And as a result... He's very unstable and moody because when he's criticized or if life doesn't go his way, his life literally falls apart. He doesn't know what to do. His identity is ultimately based on the opinion of other people. His life is guided by what they think or what they say. Esther, on the other hand, finds her identity not in who she is, but in whose she is. See, Esther didn't see herself as Esther, queen of Persia. She saw herself as Esther, a Jewish woman of the people of Israel. 
her step of faith was based on her connection to God's chosen people. Get all the Jews together and let's all go before the Lord. Her conviction was a conviction of faith. That's why it began with fasting and prayer. Her primary concern was making a decision that was in accordance with God's will. And in the face of great difficulty, when Haman crumbled, Esther stood tall. In the face of great adversity, when Haman's shallow relationships abandoned him, Esther's relationships were strengthened in a bond of faith. Haman found security and power and control. Esther found peace and humble surrender. So when you look at those two examples, I think we should examine them in light of us. Where do we find our identity? Does your world fall apart when life doesn't go your way? Is your happiness dependent upon your circumstances? Things going well, I'm doing good. Things not going well, I'm not doing good. Are you quick-tempered? Emotionally fragile? Is it hard for you to maintain meaningful, long-term relationships? You see, if those are patterns in your life, there's a very good chance that you're finding your identity in all the wrong places. And I think for all of us, we've struggled with this at some points in our life, and many of us may be right now. So the question is, if that's the case, what do you do about it? What does it look like to, to find your identity in Christ instead of people and power and, and possessions? I believe it begins just like it did with Esther, in prayer. Because prayer is an honest confession of humble surrender before the Lord. It's the right place to start. See, until you turn to Him, your identity will be shaped by all those things around you. Very often, what we spend our most time reflecting on, what we think about most, is where we find our identity. That's why the Bible consistently tells us to set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. That's why it tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Why does it say that? Because it understands that our identity is often determined by what we think about most. What consumes us. And so prayer is a good place to start because it puts your mind in the right place by focusing your intentions on following God's desire. It's trying to align your heart with His will. Now, I told you that I wouldn't take you anywhere that I wasn't willing to go myself, right? And you need to know that this is where I live. Because God has a way of putting me in situations that are out of my control. For example, I'm a pastor. Not something I intended as a career choice, but something that I truly believe God led me to. And I want you to know that I deeply and sincerely care about every person in this room. I really have a sincere desire to love you well, to lead you well, to shepherd you well. 
But I also understand that I have to be careful not to find my identity and my ability to impact your life. Because I don't possess that power. I can't change your heart. That's outside of my realm. And I need to learn to be content with being faithful. Like you, I'm a parent. And and I want to see both my boys grow to love and to serve the Lord faithfully. And, And I have to be careful not to find my identity, like you, in how well they're doing or not doing. Because, as you know, as they get older, they begin to make choices on their own. And even in their lives, I can't change their heart. I've begun to understand why I've heard many older than me say that probably the hardest season in parenting is raising adult children. Because you still have the same same deep love for them, but you're in a season in life where you have absolutely no control. They're grown and on their own. So if our identity is found in shifting circumstances. If we try to anchor our lives on things we can't control, we will find ourselves drifting all over the map of emotions. We'll be blown by every wind of doctrine that promises a predictable outcome. If you do this, then this happens. Okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. But you'll find no stability when your heart is not anchored on faith. Trusting in God to do things that you cannot possibly control on your own. That's why prayer is the best place to start. Because it is a place of surrender. It's where you relinquish control. It's where you find your identity as a child of God who's going before a good and perfect heavenly father and you're trusting him beyond even yourself see he's the only one who's in control ever he's the only one who can change hearts ever he's the only one who can shape our lives to conform to the image of christ which by the way was an image of complete dependency and trust in the heavenly That's what we're called to. So if you take anything away this morning, I hope you take away the importance of being a person of prayer. Humble surrender before the Lord. Relinquishing your control and accepting the invitation to put your trust in Him. I've never done this before. I don't even know if it's going to work. But here's one of my greatest concerns. My greatest concern is that we all sit here, we look at God's word, there are things that impress upon our hearts, we walk out that door, and it goes away. All the distractions and things that we're somewhat protected from here, then all of a sudden tackle us as soon as we step out that door, and we lose grasp on what may be a conviction right here. And so here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to begin with prayer. And we're going to pray with and for one another. And how, this is how this is going to happen, I think. <laughs> if there are things that are happening in your life 
that you want someone to pray with you about, I want you to come up here. This is not an altar call. This is a defining moment because here's the reality. Sometimes we need to do something that makes us a little uncomfortable. How many of you, when I just said that, thought, oh, please don't make me do that? <laughs> yeah. And, and the reality is, is when we can get away from things that make us uncomfortable, then we can choose whether we really want to do that thing or not. Very often, when we have to do what Esther did and step out of our comfort zone and do something that was risky for her, costing her life potentially, then sometimes those convictions take deep root in our lives. And so if you have things that you want someone to pray with and for you about, we're just going to take some time here at the end to come forward and pray with each other. Now, Gary and Mark and others, Jason, come up here. But if you see somebody walking up here that you want to pray with, then you come up here with them. So, I don't know if it's going to work. But if you have something that you want somebody to pray with you about, would you please come up here now? If you see somebody coming up here that your heart's inclined to pray with and for, would you please join them? All. So if you're sitting out there, you're praying for these people up here. <laughs> if you're standing up here, then you find people that are up here to pray with you and for you. And we're just going to take some time to do that. Just in the quietness of your time together, it's okay, you can talk out loud, but pray with and for each other. You pray for them and pray together, and then I'll close this in prayer, okay? Let's just take the time to do that now. Tell me, remind me your name again. Thank you for your willingness to be uncomfortable. <laughs> Because sometimes those are the moments of our greatest conviction. When we step out in faith to do something that we normally wouldn't do. And so I'm grateful. And I'm, I'm grateful that we're a church family where this is a safe place to do the abnormal. <laughs> to do something that uh, is not typical for us. But we love each other. And what greater privilege than to pray with and for each other. So there's a psalm that I thought of as I thought of us spending this time that I want to share with you just four verses Psalm 61 listen to what it has to say and think about what just happened I'm going to change the words to say uh, to be plural pro pronoun to speak for us okay hear our prayer O God give heed to our cry from the end of the earth we call to you when our heart is faint Lead us to the rock that is higher than us. For you have been a refuge for us, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let us dwell in your tent forever, and may we take refuge in the shelter of your wings. That's what we just did. And I pray that this continues to be part of our identity as God's people at Melanie Park Church. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege to be a part of this family. I thank you that we can bear our struggles, confess our sin, be honest with the things where we fall short, but all come together in the hope that we find in you, our shelter, our protector, our king. 
Father, I pray that we would find ourselves often in this place of humble surrender before you. That we would look to you as the only one who's in control. The only one who can change hearts. The only one whose path leads to all that our heart longs for most. Through a meaningful and personal relationship with you. Through faith and trust in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the time this morning. It's been a blessing. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.